Chapter Eight of East by West: A Journey in the Recess, Volume Two, by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight in the Tropics. It is a striking thing when making long journeys by sea in the Far East to notice how the British lion has laid its massive paw upon successive points of strategical importance till it has girdled asia africa and europe with a line of outposts as in the time of the armada beacon fires were built around the coast till skiddaw saw the fire that burned on gaunt's embattled pile and the red glare on skiddaw roused the burghers of carlisle so now on a larger range beacon fire answers to beacon fire from the china seas to the mediterranean it is lit at hong kong in southern china it is flashed from singapore on the malay peninsula and is taken up almost within sight at penang it twinkles at fort blair on the lonely andaman island rangoon and mulmain hand on the torch which blazes throughout british burma akiab at the mouth of the ganges shows the light making near connection with india all ceylon is british with its military camp at colombo and its naval station in trincomalee aden in arabia and perim on the far side of the red sea hold out the signal which burns on socotra a little island commanding the gulf of aden whilst in the mediterranean it shows boldly forth at cyprus malta and on the rock of gibraltar how it came to pass that these odd corners of the earth should belong to a little island set in northern seas it would perhaps not be desirable too closely to inquire but there they are quietly unresistingly and to tell the truth prosperously living under british rule monuments of the activity and the audacity of british enterprise singapore as we approached was a long low landmark lying dark under wet skies with here and there patches of green showing where the chinese having worked a gambia field at high pressure had exhausted the generous soil and leaving it the coarse long grass had sprung up we left hong kong in the verona which on getting clear of the harbour found itself battling with heavy seas it was a hot close muggy night good neither for man nor beast a passenger impatient of the restraint of his cabin had a bed made up for him in the saloon in the dead of the night he woke dreaming of green pastures and lowing kine he found he was being walked over by two oxen shipped at hong kong with ulterior purposes they too had found their quarters uncomfortable and walking out had strayed into the saloon round which they sniffed with much melancholy booing on the second day we slid into summer seas the northeast monsoon filling our sails and making the hot ship glad with pleasant breezes the punkers began to swing in the saloon and on deck appeared gossamer dresses and thinnest of flannel suits before the steamer came to her moorings in singapore she was surrounded by a fleet of small roughly made boats manned by tawny lads naked save for a loincloth yes sir yes sir they shouted in chorus have a dive sir all right sir throw in a piece sir 
a coin thrown over the boat nearest to which it fell was suddenly emptied the lads leapt into the water like a flash of brown thunderbolts and in a moment were back again holding the tiny silver coin in their gleaming teeth they were quite as much at home in water as out and that at the time we met them they chanced to be in a boat was a pure accident we got up a race for them six boats entering for a good long course round a boy and back the tide was running very strongly and as they got into its course they were swept off making the goal seem hopeless one boat caught a beam by a wave filled and was on the point of sinking but the young malays abated not one jot of their efforts with the skulls as they tugged with their arms they kicked out the water with their feet and having thus bailed the boat dry soon made up the way they had lost whilst waterlogged the race was as fine a one as i ever saw not a boat's length between any as they came back still fighting with the mighty current the prizes were delivered in unusual fashion the money was chucked into the sea and the youngsters darting overboard appropriated it the malays are natives of singapore but it is the chinese who work the place since the business of pirating has been discountenanced the malay seems to have lost all taste and energy for work if need be he will labour for his daily bread but as his necessities are cheaply provided for the amount of work got out of him is not exhaustive what he likes to do best or rather the kind of work which he least abhors is fishing a gentlemanly avocation in which occur long pauses for rest when he has caught enough fish to provide himself with a meal and a little over to barter for rice he goes home having reached the utmost limits of the day's work his home is a dark and dirty hut built upon piles over water if water be conveniently at hand if not then over mud the notion of building a house with its foundations set in dry land is an incomprehensible thing to the malay well-to-do people of his race live down by the wharfs with the piles standing in real water that is the west end of the malay social settlement poor people who live where they must still have their houses built on piles but there is only mud underneath or with the lowest scale of all absolutely dry land the chinese have overrun the whole of the malay peninsula and adjacent parts but for them british interest in the straits of malacca which on the eve of the general election of eighteen seventy four excited mr disraeli's misgiving and were never after alluded to would be in straitened circumstances englishmen cannot live and labour in these tropical climes the malay lives and will not labour the chinese does both with cheerful shining countenance and prospers exceedingly chinamen work in the coffee and sugar plantations and own some of them they keep the shops sail the ships and own these too looking out over the busy harbour of penang from the veranda of the clubhouse a resident specially well informed in the matter told me that nearly all the fleet then at anchor belonged to chinamen the p and o the british india and other sea-going fleets appropriate the big loaves the chinamen pick up the crumbs that fall from their tables and thrive upon them 
they have coasting steamers running to places the precise locality of which is more absolutely unknown to the average englishman than was that of the straits of malacca when mr disraeli sprung the sounding phrase on a bewildered nation and an astonished government if there is no trade to begin with they make it foster its growth and when once they get a hold on the place no one can get them out a marvellous people the chinese who now quietly and unobtrusively play an important part in the history of the world and are doubtless destined to fulfil more striking ones they are a nation without the distinction fatal elsewhere of round pegs and square holes square pegs and round holes the whole may be square or round the chinaman will fit it if there is any money to be got out of it singapore is the emporium of the malay peninsula hither come the spices gambia tin and the buffalo hides which chinese merchants some of them not above the status of a peddler buy in the interior and which chinese ships bring to the great port of call for english steamers just now they are watching with keen interest an experiment being tried in the neighbouring principality of Johor. the maharaja is one of the few princes left hereabouts who is not under british rule but whilst preserving his independence his highness is a devoted ally and friend of england he has visited the country speaks its language and is even more sedulous in imitating its customs and institutions than the present ministry of japan his palace is at Johor, the capital of his principality but he has a house at singapore where he lives in english style and as far as he can control his surroundings with english people he has been twice married and both his wives are alive his second wife has borne him children but it appears to be against the law that they should inherit the throne and accordingly a nephew has been declared heir apparent this young gentleman has just returned from england where he was educated the maharaja is a mohammedan and a strict observer of religious rites when as sometimes happens he goes out to dinner his cook marches in advance to see that no meat comes to table unless the beast has died by having its throat cut yet in imitation of the religious liberty prevalent in england the maharaja tolerates all religions and the other day presented eight acres of land as a site for a roman catholic mission in one respect his highness has improved upon his model since he rules his people and dwells in the comity of nations without the assistance of a standing army a body of police keep the peace among the malays and in the chinese communities the head man is made to answer for order the maharaja's revenues which are variously estimated at from sixty to a hundred thousand a year come chiefly from licenses for the sale of opium which is consumed by the chinese there is also a tax on the export of agricultural products and every pig or other animal that is killed in the principality pays tribute to the maharaja still the mainstay of his revenue is the opium tax and thus the chinese keep the state going at both ends creating its prosperity by their labour and returning a considerable portion of their earnings in the form of taxation 
jahore is rich in woods which cover its hills and dales but the cost of transport is so great that this which would be a source of wealth elsewhere is here an embarrassment the experiment on which the chinese is just now fixing his shrewd small eyes is that of coffee planting the climate and the soil of johore have always seemed peculiarly well adapted for the cultivation of coffee some years ago a few hundred acres were sown but the wrong plant was selected and failure followed temporarily shutting off experiments of a similar kind three years ago about a thousand acres were planted with another kind of berry which is looking exceedingly hopeful it takes four years before a new coffee plantation bears fruit next year is the crucial one and should the experiment turn out as well as it just now promises johore will become an important place singapore presents strange contrasts of english and tropical life being an english town just as much as eastbourne or brighton though set within eighty miles of the equator its streets are named in english fashion with the familiar white letters on blue enamel high street and stamford road are the kind of names written up and at the corners of the road are homely cabalistic signs f p forty feet indicating the whereabouts of the water pipe the policemen wear a modification of their british brethren's uniform one detail being that it is apparently optional for them to wear stockings some do and some do not a pretty sharp contrast passed me in high street a tricycle came along and on it was seated a grave and reverend signor in yellow turban white jacket red shirt a paper umbrella and bare brown legs in spite of tricycles high streets water-pipes lamp-posts and police in uniform singapore is intensely tropical the atmosphere is something that one never looks through elsewhere the figures that throng its sunny streets are all tropical europeans dress in white duck suits with straw hats and umbrellas the native men dress in as little as possible the chinese come out in cool costumes of white or of that rich blue the making of which and transference to calico stuffs seems to be one of their secrets in addition there are many emigrants from india in their varied costumes madras sends a considerable contingent the women strikingly handsome and graceful western civilization and eastern habits of dress come again in sharp contrast in the matter of billycock hats i have often wondered what became of this widely used headgear when it grew too shabby to wear the secret is an open one for any who come across the chinese labouring out of their own country the old hats are collected in england and forwarded in bales to wherever the chinese most do congregate i noticed the incongruity among the chinese who crowded the coptic in the voyage across the pacific it is much more striking here that a chinaman on board ship should cover his shaven pate with an old billycock hat stained with hair grease buffeted by english winds and soaked in london fog looks funny but is not inexplicable anything will do on board ship 
to see him here on land dressed in all his best his spotless white gown and blue trousers his face shining with soap and worldly prosperity his pigtail neatly disposed down his back and on his head a greasy battered billycock is passing strange it cannot be simply the form and material that recommend the hat otherwise they would have them new i never saw a chinaman i won't say with a new hat on but with anything less than one of disreputable old age i fancy that with the chinese the ruling passion is strong alike in the matter of eggs and hats they like them both old the jinrikisha is seen at singapore but as at hong kong though for a different reason it does not flourish it is absolutely too hot for a man however lightly clad to run about dragging weights and the few jinrikishas one meets do not get much beyond walking pace at penang the triumphant westward march of the jinrikisha is finally arrested both at singapore and penang a conveyance called a gharry is in popular use it is a large black funereal structure something like a pauper's hearse it is drawn by a small but masterful and well-made pony a couple of which would very comfortably stow themselves in the gharry the hong kong ponies splendid little creatures but apt to wax wroth and kick are much prized at singapore we brought one down for the maharaja's brother his highness was on the wharf with umbrella up awaiting the arrival of his new acquisition he's all right we have got him here the friend who had brought him shouted over the bulwarks is he asked the prince with anxious face and bated breath is he quiet being assured on this point the prince a portly personage in white ducks heaved a sigh of satisfaction and turned away the traction of heavier goods is accomplished in carts drawn by a yoke of oxen there is nevertheless plenty of work for porters who under the noonday sun carry stupendous burdens by bamboos borne upon their shoulders they scorn the interposition of a pad between their bare flesh and the hard bamboo accustomed from earliest boyhood to carry weights in this way the skin and muscle of their shoulders have so hardened as to become insensible to what to an english porter would be pain unbearable for more than ten minutes at a stretch it is a long drive from the wharf to the hotel which is situated in the centre of the town the highway is bordered with tropical vegetation palms coconut trees bananas now fully bearing and flowers familiar in english hothouses here growing by the wayside in wild luxuriance in the early morning when life is well worth living in the tropics we took a drive to the botanic gardens at singapore which are beautifully kept and full of choicest tropical plants and trees growing in perfection in a pond were a group of the victoria lilies the flower not yet out but a bud of the size of knobs on a family four-post bedstead was ready to burst the leaves floating flat on the water with edges turned up at right angles were large enough to have floated the infant moses i had one measured it was four feet across 
the day after we arrived was sunday and in the evening we went to the cathedral a fine building situated on a bluff overlooking the harbour the punkers were in full swing pulled by natives stationed all round the building the bishop preached an excellent sermon pleading for funds to endow mission churches where in distant parts of his diocese the natives resting from their six days labours might spend quiet sabbaths i wondered whether through the open windows and doors the perspiring punker men heard anything of these kind accents or took a close interest in the amount of the collection made the hotel at singapore like all the european buildings is a roomy place with cool verandas and open doors and windows courting whatever chance breeze may blow in the office there is a placard prominently pasted up curious enough to be worth copying passengers and boarders it runs are respectfully requested not to ask the manager for any money as he has strict injunctions not to give same this is not an isolated hint of a certain aspect of social life in these parts in one or two other hotels i have seen a similar intimation though not so bluntly and quaintly put even more common is the edict that the servants of the hotel have instructions to hold on to all baggage till bills are paid the harbour at penang is full of bustling life and colour to which the sampan men contribute a full share they cast gay clothes about their dusky forms and lavish pictorial art upon the stern-sheets of their boats underneath a stretchy landscape apparently turned upside down or a brilliant painting of a steamer with its paddles close to the rudder the proprietor proudly paints his own name joe is a favourite cognomen london charlie shows originality and one boatman advertises himself in a breath as bob good sampan man in most respects penang is like singapore except that its streets are narrower there is the same vertically shining sun the same gay colours in the street and the same long roads in the suburbs lined with coconut trees and palms and bananas on one of these we met a man in white turban and blue gown walking along the sun-baked road flanked by coconut trees carrying under his arm a bundle of the graphic arrived by the last mail penang has a commodious market in which are sold vegetables fruit fish and meat very little business was being transacted when we passed through on a butcher's stall lying on their backs fast asleep surrounded by warm-looking joints of meat were two butchers the flies impartially feeding upon the living and the dead the fruit displayed on the stalls consisted of coconuts bananas limes oranges pines to be bought at twopence each and pumelos for those who have fed on the amoy pumelo the growth of other districts are grievously disappointing on due reflection i hold the amoy pumelo to be the most gracious fruit in the world it is said to be the forbidden fruit and since i tasted it i take a less stern view of the weakness of adam albeit it hereditarily entails upon me with the thermometer at ninety in the shade 
the necessity of sitting here writing when everybody else within view is diligently doing nothing i do not know whether the pumelo in its fresh state reaches london i have not seen it there it is like a brobdignagian orange in shape and of a light lemon colour the peel is very thick but is easily removed and the fruit is pulled to pieces in figs whence the white under the skin peels off leaving only the luscious fruit with its generous juice and its delicate flavour i am writing from tender recollection of the amoy pumelo others though they might have been acceptable if tasted first as brussels enthralls those who do not know paris are not worth peeling and indeed are to be resented as desecrating the name of pumelo one tropical fruit of which i had heard a good deal but reached penang too late in the season to taste is the durian this remarkable fruit is the size of a coconut with the husk of i asked a scotchman what it tasted like like a haggis with an onion too much in it he said that is however the most favourable description i have heard and long residence out of scotland had probably confused his recollection of the flavour of haggis the fruit certainly appears to be composed haggis-like of an olla podrida no two men agree in their description of its taste except in the one respect of an over-dash of onion the smell is truly terrific and the fruit is opened only after extraordinary precautions i heard at hong kong of the case of some english officers desirous of tasting this curious fruit who hired an empty house closed the windows and doors opened the fruit and with one accord fled leaving it untasted the malay holds it as a great delicacy and to the chinaman it is a luxury comparable only with an egg that has been in the family five years the high court of justice was sitting during our stay in penang and we strolled in to see how justice was administered in these parts the court was roomy and fresh and the punkers diligently at work a civil case was going forward involving the property of two chinese the judge an amiable undecided-looking old gentleman sat on the bench unaided by the majesty of wig or gown the clerk who sat under him wore a black gown and white bands of stupendous size two barristers engaged in the case wore black gowns and white duck trousers the court was pretty full in the portion allotted to the public here sat a chinaman in cool white baju with roomy sleeves capable of holding the fourteenth trump or anything else that might be useful in the game of life singhalese in bright-coloured calico robes their heads covered with straw rimless flower-pot-shaped hats adorned with verses from the koran and malays who had put on unaccustomed trousers in deference to the prejudices of the court standing at one of the barriers was a bengalee with a yellow ochre mark on the bridge of his nose denoting his caste a white calico robe was his sole garment but he had draped it around his tall lithe figure with a grace which the british workman would vainly endeavour to imitate 
if indeed he would feel promptings of desire in that direction the crowd in court were not able to follow the glib pleadings of the gentlemen in white ducks and black gowns a circumstance evidently taken note of by the astute practitioner if they could not follow the speech they would understand that the gentleman in ducks who was constantly popping up to interrupt his learned brother was a kind of man whose services it would be desirable to engage in time of trouble accordingly whilst one learned counsel was supposed to have the ear of the court the other was incessantly jumping up with an indignant my lord i protest or a now really this is too bad whenever this happened the chinamen in the body of the court exchanged approving glances as who should say that's the man for my money he's always alive not easy to come over him i was not surprised to hear that this irrepressible person in whose hands the old gentleman on the bench was as a reed blown by the winds had the lion's share of the practice in the high court of justice in penang End of chapter 8